Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends Podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram, as well as reading, read my writing on film and a lot more at cupofmo.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'd also love if you went to the iTunes store or Podcast Addict, Stitcher, Spotify, and subscribed, as well as left us a rating and left us a review. And I am joined in the studio by my wonderful co-host. What's up, Lloyd Fiends? It's Gabriel Orto. If you want to go ahead and give us a like on Facebook, that would be fan-fucking-tastic. You can also follow us on Twitter at Fiends. And you know what? We're enjoying making the picks, but we also want to hear from you guys what movies you want us to feature on the podcast. So hit us up, let us know what you want us to review, and we will shout you out on the show if you do. Tonight, we are talking about the legendary film, Lord of Illusions. It's Cue the jack-off music. I'll just insert that in there when uh, when when I'm doing the editing. <laughs> uh, this is one of my all-time favorite films. And if you've been listening to the podcast since its inception, you probably already fucking know that. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with Lord of Illusions, this movie came out in 1995. It was written and directed by Clive Barker, and it was based on his short story, The Last Illusion. It had a budget of $11 million, and it made a modest $13.3 million at the box office. Lord of Illusions currently holds a 61% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a 52% audience score. It stars Scott Bakula, Fomka Jansen, Daniel Von Bargen, and Kevin J. O'Connor. It opens up in 1982 where cult leader Nix, also known as the Puritan, uses real magic. And a party of disillusioned, see what I did there, former cult members including Philip Swan and Casper Quaid raid the cult complex where Nix has kidnapped a young girl and plans to sacrifice her. Swan manages to subdue Nyx and buries him in the desert, but not before Nyx attacks him with magic. Thirteen years later, private investigator Harry Damore, who has a taste for the occult, is hired for a job in Los Angeles. And what begins as a routine surveillance job leads Damore to a dying fortune teller, Quaid. He's then hired by Swan's wife, Dorothea, after they learn of Quaid's death. And more accompanies Dorothea to one of Swan's shows where the now famous illusionist seemingly dies, which puts him onto the trail of Nyx. So what was your first experience with this movie? My first experience with this movie is I made I saw it when I first moved to North Carolina. About ten years ago I saw this movie. 2010, 11 I saw this movie. It was during a time where I didn't have a lot of friends, and I just watched buy, buy and watch movies all the time. 
And I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It's a Clive Barker classic in my eyes. Um, nothing really against it. I, I love Scott Bakula, obviously. <laughs> um, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite movies, but it definitely holds high praises in my book. At the risk of giving away my rating, which I probably did from the first Cellular Fiends episode ever, this is one of my favorite movies. I originally found out about this from a sample in a Jedi Mind Trick song, actually. It was the Immaculate Conception off of the Psychosocial LP, and it samples Fomka's quote of flesh is a trap, but magic sets us free. I was like, what is this from? So I ended up looking it up, and I watched the trailer, and it seemed like kind of a, a neat movie, and I ended up checking it out. This was probably back in, like, I don't know, 2011, and I've watched it quite a few times ever since. I picked this because I feel like it's a very underappreciated film. And I would love to see it have a resurgence and gain a cult following. Before we get into the the review of this movie, I just want Mo to go over the extent of his Lord of, Lord of Illusions collection, including the poster above his bed. <laughs> Well, all right, so I have two posters for this. I have an original one sheet above my bed, which her mutual friend, Kenny Caperton of Myers House NC, Acclaim, actually gave to me as a Christmas present a while back. I have a smaller poster hanging up in my living room, and that, I think, came with the Shout Factory Blu-ray release that I ended up purchasing. I have the... Uh, collector's edition blu-ray which i just mentioned i have a vhs copy and have a dvd and i have the laser disc so i just wanted to mo to do that so you could see the extent of how much mo loves this movie i have the soundtrack just the mp3s i bought them i bought it on like amazon or something a while back and the desktop wallpaper on my computer is a Lord of Illusions poster. <laughs> so, there you have it. That's the extent of my Lord of Illusions collection for now. <laughs> this, to me, just feels very unique on a number of levels. Like, for one, it's very distinctly a Clive Barker film. Anything that Clive Barker directed has a unique style to it but for a Clyde Barker film this actually feels really subdued oh yeah but it did like for it being subdued it there's certain traits that you can tell it's still a Clyde Barker film one of those things is the violence oh yeah and the violence is pretty heavy-handed in this he takes the gore down a couple notches when you compare it to something like Hellraiser, but when you compare right. fucking anything to Hellraiser, it's less gory. But yeah, it's it it's a pretty brutal movie from the onset. Like even that opening scene at the uh, Nix's complex with the little girl who's about to be sacrificed. Right. Like that was a pretty intense opening segment. And, of course, you have the soundtrack, which was composed by um, Simon Boswell, over top with like, warbling voices and just filled with 
uh, a lot of timpani and and really crafted an ominous overtone which is almost like a Clive Barker staple. The soundtrack goes hand in hand with Clive Barker movies. Especially movies like this and I would say Hellraiser also. Absolutely. And fun fact about Lore of Illusions, but the soundtrack was originally supposed to be composed by Christopher Young, who scored at least the first two Hellraiser soundtracks, if not more. Uh, But... There were some post-production issues, and so Simon Boswell ended up taking it over. And I felt like he did he did something different than Christopher Young would have done, but there are a lot of Christopher Young musical cues in there, especially the booming timpani. And that was one of my favorite elements of the movie, actually, the soundtrack. It, it, I gotta be honest with you, um, I never realized how much... A part the soundtrack played in this movie until we watched it again the other night, and I actually downloaded it as soon as Mo left my apartment. <laughs> well, I I think it was still there. It was like while the closing credits were rolling, <laughs> and I saw I looked over and you were on your phone, and you're like, "I'm downloading the soundtrack." <laughs> <laughs> I just if there's anything that I am, I am definitely a soundtrack guy. I have a lot of movie soundtracks. It's just something I like to listen to while I'm at work or doing something at home. It, movie soundtracks are just something that I really love. Oh, same here. I just I get so fascinated with movie soundtracks. And uh, I use movie soundtracks a lot for background music while I'm writing. Um, so, I'm going in with a hard question here. Top five favorite movie soundtracks. Um, okay. Or we could do a top ten if you want. I'll do top five. I, I can't give a certain order, but I can give you my, my, my five favorite. First, I would have to say Space Jam. Oh, that's a classic. Space Jam. Um, Halloween. What's another one? I definitely. I'm trying to think of ones that I have. The Hellraiser soundtrack. Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm trying to pick a good one. I would have to say, um, Evil Dead. That was a good sleeper pick. The Evil Dead soundtrack is ridiculously underappreciated. I'm going to go with, again, in no particular order, Lord of Illusions, Hellraiser. I'm going to go with Warlock. I love pretty much anything that Jerry Goldsmith composed, and I think that's one of his more underrated soundtracks. I didn't realize he composed some music for the Mulan soundtrack. I might have to throw Space Jam in there as well. I had the cassette back in the day. I have a CD of it now. I'm waiting for the vinyl release. And... You know, I might have to go Big Trouble in Little China. Or, you know what? No. Phantasm. 
Phantasm has a great soundtrack. And let's also not forget the the marvelous stuff. Like, there's a bunch of songs. Like, there's the Star Wars soundtrack. Um, stuff like that. Like, always makes me happy. The Home Alone soundtrack. Most of the Alien movies. Oh, yeah. What I tend to find with my favorite soundtracks is often a lot of them are composed by sort of the same group of people. Like, pretty much anything that Jerry Goldsmith did. Love it. And let's not forget the kings of the horror movie soundtrack, the band Goblin. Oh, yeah. And, of course, uh, John Carpenter. Yes, John Carpenter. Um, John Williams did Star Wars. John Williams did a lot. He did Star Wars. He did Jaws. He did Jurassic Park. (laughs) He did a lot of movies. Uh, James Horner. We can't forget James Horner. He was very prolific as well. He did Aliens and uh, he did the Brainstorm soundtrack. Yeah, I, I love pretty much anything he did. So... Getting back to Lord of Illusions, one unique quality I think this has is sort of the way it's a bit of a genre bender. And we were sort of discussing something similar with Get Out, actually, earlier. Yes. And saying that Get Out feels more like a thriller, but with horror elements in it. Absolutely. Lord of Illusions, to me, feels like a noir film that has horror elements peppered throughout. Especially with the heavy-handed gore and the frightening soundtrack. I think you have to call it a horror film, but... But it's also, it's kind of uh, like a fantasy-type movie, too. 100%. And and also a mystery. Yeah. So, I just, I like the way it, it mashes up genres a bit, and it... It feels cohesive, though, despite that. Unlike something like Life Force, which I adore that movie. And Gabe, you haven't seen that one. I have not seen Life Force. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a movie Gabe has not seen. But I have seen. It's the Celluloid Fiends first. Yeah, I feel like whenever movies come up that one of us hasn't seen, it's usually me and you're like, you gotta watch that. (laughs) So I feel very proud at this moment that there's a film... That I can bring up on the podcast that I've seen and you haven't. <laughs> well, we'll have to have a, a whiteboard where we start keeping score now. <laughs> but in Life Force sort of does the same thing, except it's a little more disjointed and it's almost like listening to a symphony with different movements where it just drastically shifts genres. Whereas Lord of Illusions does feel very cohesive. Right. And I think the magic is really what gives it that fantasy vibe that you mentioned. And in particular, the scenes, the beginning and the end with Nyx, where you actually see magic being performed, as well as, I would say, the visit to the Magic Castle. Yes, yes. And the Magic Castle is a real place. It is in Los Angeles. Um, it is a private club for magicians and to do tricks together. I did not realize that until after the movie and I was looking up, you know, the first time I saw this and I was looking up the locations and I was like, oh shit, 
Magic Castle is a real fucking place. It is. And ever since then, I've, I've wanted to go visit. But I really liked that scene a lot. And I want to talk about that a bit more. Because it had a very light tone to it. Oh, yes. But, like, in movies like Clive Barker's, there, there always seems to be something that's lighthearted in it. And I feel like you got to do that with some of his movies. Because if it's just dark and grim and awful the whole time, I think you lose viewers. Agreed. Although, I do feel like Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2, which I almost look at those as just one movie. Oh, yeah. Those don't really seem to have anything fucking lighthearted at all. Right, but that that's almost like... Clive Barker's like, like baby, like I'm not saying Lord of Illusions isn't a baby, but Hellraiser is his real baby. Oh yes, uh, and that and Nightbreed. Yeah, I have not seen Nightbreed. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're 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 tied for this episode so far with not having seen movies. Uh, Scott Bakula's performance, I think, really notably helps give this movie a lighthearted feel to it. Because it seems like he didn't really take himself too seriously in this movie. And he, he knew when to be serious and when to be a little campy. And the character of Harry Damore, he's, he's pretty goofy in this movie. Now, here's the real question. At the end of Lord of Illusions, does he leap back home? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Lord of Illusions is actually just an extended episode of Quantum Leap. It's Quantum Leap the movie, ladies and gentlemen. I could sort of see that. Does he finally get home? After Lord of Illusions? You know, I'm going to say this is actually the homecoming. So the beginning of the movie, there was a scene cut out where he leaped home, and this was the home he leaped to. Really? Yeah, it was a bit of a dystopian episode. (laughs) 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 He changed careers a little bit, became a private investigator with a specialty in the occult. But was he a drunk? I don't know if I'd say he was a drunk. He was a fuck-up, definitely. Well, sort of. But I think he was he was chasing his demons with... Quite literally demons. With alcohol. I think, I think that's what he was doing in a few scenes. Uh, but yeah, I, I really liked... It was the first scene where he's in the car with Valentin, who is Swan's... Uh, Butler, mm-hmm. and I really appreciated the way Scott Bakula pulled that off in stepping into the role of Harry Demore because he he shows that he has investigative chops, but he does it in a way that's kind of goofy, and I I just appreciated the way he he br- uh, sort of brought that character to life. Oh yes. Scott Bakula is, and always will be, a fantastic actor. Oh, yeah. I think he's very underappreciated. I think he deserves more credit 
than he currently gets. Uh, he's I think he's most well known for Quantum Leap and a lot of his television work. Like right. he's on NCIS New Orleans, which I'm actually a big fan of that because of Scott Bakula, of course. But also, uh, I lived in New Orleans for a few months, so it's kind of fun watching and seeing places that I used to gallivant around. He he was also in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You've mentioned that, and I remember once like, I got a text from you, and you were fucking watching that, and you like paused it on TV and took a picture. Yeah, and I sent you the picture. Scott Bakula in that episode plays Scott Bakula as a janitor <laughs> at an old person's home. Oh, uh, wait, was this a Bubba Hotep prequel? <laughs> <laughs> Have you read any Clive Barker? I have not read the books. I haven't read as much as I probably should, but I did read the uh, novella of Hellraiser, and I read the short story of Lord of Illusions, which is called The Last Illusion, and it is very different than the movie. Isn't the Hellraiser one pretty different from... um from Hellraiser also? In some ways, but I did feel like the two were more similar than The Last Illusion was from Lord of Illusions. Like those two works are drastically different. But one thing that I didn't realize until after I watched Lord of Illusions and then started reading some more about a lot of Barker's literature is the character of Harry DeMore is very prevalent in a lot of his works. And something that I would have liked to see, which unfortunately didn't happen, is maybe a film series or even a television series that featured that character more. Because I think I think this really could have been franchised pretty well. Oh, yeah. I think Scott Bagula would have done a bang-up job in like a film series or a TV show just of Clive Barker's work. Yeah, I think that would have been phenomenal. Uh, I'm really curious, though, why this movie didn't perform better than it did at the box office. It came out in 1995, and I think people were starting to go a different route route with horror movies. you got to remember, Scream came out around this time. Yeah, and you also had some stuff like Seven, which I'd, I'd call that a horror movie. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. I do think it was, unfortunately, just sort of a shift in the horror paradigm at the time. I feel if this movie came out in the late 80s, it would have fared a little better. Yeah, because it's just it's more straightforward horror, although, like we mentioned, it does opt for some different genre cues but it is more serious horror and i think kind of in the mid to late 90s you were seeing a lot of mix up in the and it's not only genre. that we started to in the 90s we started to shift back to the 70s mentality of having horror movies be about teenagers yeah and this features no teenagers. Right. 
at all. Because we had like Scream, I know you did last summer. We had Final Destination, and everything was very teen oriented. They're trying to get, they were trying to get kids back to the movies. Even a lot of the knockoff horror movies that were coming out around the mid to late nineties and early two thousands, like Generation X, were very like, teen slasher film right. format. Whether they were sticking with the tropes of the horror genre or whether they were subverting those tropes. And I remember when Scream first came out, everybody in my school wanted to see Scream. They all wanted to go see it in the theater. None of us were old enough. So we, what we would do is we would buy a ticket to uh, another movie and then go get our ticket torn and then go into the theater that was showing the rated R movie. Is that what you did for Scream? Yes. Yeah, I did not do that for Scream. I think it was like, I don't know, six when that came out or something. So. I, I actually did that also for the Blair Witch Project. And funny story, I told the director of the Blair Witch Project that I did that. What was his reaction? You owe me $7. <laughs> <laughs> so did you pay up? No. <laughs> like, he, he, he's fucking with me, obviously. Yeah. No, I'm sure he was. He was His daughter him. was there. She was like, "Daddy, why would people have to sneak into your movies?" He goes, "Like, you know, kids used kids kids had to do that to see my movie. It's okay." <laughs> She's like, "I never sneak in." It was like, "Yeah, because we allow you to watch horror movies." <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we're gonna take a break. And when we come back, we're gonna keep talking about Lord of Illusions. Something is watching. Something is listening. Something is coming. How would you like to see the world the way it really is? What's going on here? Detective Harry Damour is walking a path. I want you to help me. Will you take the job, Mr. Damour? Where do I sign up? Between what can be seen, people are dying here. I want to know why. I've heard a name. Somebody they talk about in whispers. Who? Nix. And what must be feared? Nix is dead and buried. What the hell is wrong with you people? Haven't you seen enough to know that doesn't matter? No. I don't want him getting in the way. We've always waited too long to have the homecoming spoiled. Every step he takes. The drone. The dark side. Don't like that. Not much. It's your destiny. Accept it. Brings him closer to the truth. He could get into people's heads. Make them see things. Terrible things. See, that's his best trick. No illusions, just the truth. Mixes is back from the dead. Then he is some kind of a god. In a world where magic is real, death is the ultimate illusion. I was born to murder the world. Are you ready for my wisdom? It's not real. Come with me, Damor. I've got so much power to give you. All you have to do 
Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Hey guys, welcome back. We are talking about the 1995 Clive Barker film, Lord of Illusions. I want to dig into some of the more technical aspects of this movie. I loved the cinematography. I thought that was quite well done. And we touched on the soundtrack a little bit. And I think that's very crucial to this movie, like, like you were saying before. Because at certain moments, it lends this sort of Chinatown vibe. Like when in the, in the graveyard where uh, Demore first sees Dorothea. Oh, yeah. And there's sort of this love theme that's playing. And I think, I think Demore cracks some joke. To Valentin at that point and says something to the effect of, are there any movie stars buried here? <laughs> and it's just a really silly and kind of lighthearted scene. But then you compare that to the opening segment and, of course, the final showdown with Nyx. And there are these warbling voices or there's a lot of timpani. So I think it would be, it would be weird to watch this movie without the soundtrack. And then also I just I loved a lot of the locations and the effects. I thought for the most part the effects held up very well. Yeah, there are a couple things though that kind of date it a little bit with the the polygon man, whatever he was. Oh, <laughs> uh, that one scene is just br- really shit-tastic. Like, even for 1995, the CG was really bad. So, this is a scene where Demore is sleeping with Dorothea and it is presumed that Swan is dead. And suddenly, like, this weird polygon man, that's, that's the only way I can describe him, shows up and it's magic scent from Swan. Right. But it's just a bunch of triangles that are two-dimensional that are put together, and I really do not understand what happened. Like, Did they just run out of budget for that one scene? Like, The practical effects in this movie hold up so well. And then there's this sh- shitty CG moment. I also think some of the scenes where... They're like using fire or like spit, spitting fire or whatever. It kind of looks shitty, but like the practical effects in this movie are amazing, bar none. Oh yeah, uh, I agree about the the fire. I think there's the opening scene, and there might be one at the end as well when Nix is throwing fire mm. between his hands, and he's like, "I'm the fire shred for me," and it looks like a shoddy Photoshop job. It does, but it, those were the times. I'm sure Clyde Barker didn't have a mega budget for this movie. He had 11 million for this, which that was that was pretty low for a director like him. And I'm actually surprised it was that low because I'm not sure what the budget for Hellraiser was, but I'm sure I'm sure it had to be higher. Uh. 
It looks like that was a budget of one million. Why Hellraiser? Is that right? I well, Hellraiser is also older. True. But one million seems low. It is low. And it made fourteen at the box office. Hellraiser only made fourteen. Yeah. But I mean that's a pretty decent return on your investment there. When you make a movie for one million and you make make fourteen at the fucking box office. And that's not even including all of the home video sales. Right. And merchandising and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh but so he I guess he had a higher budget for, for Lord of Illusions. But yeah, maybe they just ran out of budget for the for the CG scenes. I don't know what happened there. Uh, I also thought a lot of the performances were very strong in this, oh, and of yeah. course, notably Scott Bakula. And I think this is this is probably my favorite performance Scott Bakula has given. And I like I'd seen him before. Uh, like in Quantum Leap, for example, but this is the movie that made me appreciate his acting. Oh, yes. This uh, is definitely a reach from Quantum Leap. Oh, yes. Uh, I think Daniel Von Bargen really steals pretty much every scene he's in as Nix. And I looked up his IMDb page a while back, and it seemed as though he had a pretty prolific career. But this is the only thing I, I think I'd seen him in. And I just thought he was phenomenal as this insane cult leader. And speaking of which, one of my favorite scenes was really haunting. And it's after Nick is resurrected and his former followers abandon the lives that they're living and return to the cult compound. And there's this sort of happy music playing and meanwhile, you're seeing these scenes of murdered families. Like one person killed their husband and two small kids at the breakfast table and was on the way out. And one guy like lets a bunch of snakes out of the zoo where he's working. And it was just a very, that's a very powerful scene. Like as many times as I watch this movie, that's one of those scenes that just really gets me every time. Oh, yeah. And I want to say Nix is... A scary, scary villain. Yeah. Because not only is he incredibly powerful, but essentially he just wants to watch the world burn. And he has that quote at the end where he says, I was born to murder the world. He he straight up kills pretty much all of his followers. And the only person that he really seems to care for is swan who rejected him which i thought was kind of an odd decision but i guess it was because he was he was the only follower that was worthy right of destroying the world with him right but there was a point it where i think the i I can't quote it quote for quote but at the end of the movie he was like well you can't murder the world with me now but you can watch yeah, it, that's that's the gist of what he's saying. Aside from the Polygon Man, which was just... That was an epic clusterfuck. There's one other aspect of Lord of Illusions that is pretty problematic. 
And that is the fact that Dorothea is the little girl who Nyx was going to sacrifice at the beginning of the movie. Who is now married to Swan. Yeah. So adult Swan, former cult member turned rescuer, shows up, saves the little girl, and then ends up marrying her. Pedophile. Which it, it is implied that by Dorothea that they didn't necessarily marry for love, but still, that is a very, very creepy moment. Oh yes, and like you, you kind of saw it coming, like from the begin, from like the first time you see Dorothea, you're like, okay, she's the fucking little girl at the beginning of the movie. Which I do want to touch on that a little bit. I think eventually it's clear that he wants to sacrifice the little girl, but. Like, it wasn't explicitly stated, and it's not, like, clear why, which I sort of appreciate at the same time. I kind of wish there were more backstory to, like, why he wants to sacrifice her and why he has... There's, like, a monkey tied up there or something. Yeah, he has, like, a like a orangutan or ape just, just tied up down there just for no reason yeah and you're just sick with the fuck okay whatever and in the and in the and the primate seems to be very angry yeah it, it was going bananas as they said oh. <laughs> we got dad jokes no no relax there's no reason to go ape <laughs> i gotta edit in a, a rim shot or something know, in here right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, celluloid fiends. We got jokes. <laughs> but, yeah, I guess by the same merit, I do appreciate the world building that goes on in this, right? Like, you, you know that Nyx wants to sacrifice this girl. You don't know what purpose, if any, that serves. Right. And then, similarly, I, I loved the beginning scene where Swan puts that iron mask on Nyx because it seems like it's imbued with some sort of magic but you're not entirely sure what properties it has and then later on one of Nyx's loyal followers Butterfield rescues Nyx and he mentions something about having to craft the tools to revive him and yeah and remove the mask so again, it insinuates a lot about the magic and the logic of the magic, but it doesn't really explain it. So right. it, it gives the idea that there's this sprawling magical universe and sort of like the seedy underbelly, and it doesn't really explain it, but it, it breathes life into this. And film. hence where we could have had a film series or TV show explaining this world that Clive Barker created. Absolutely. So why do you think it, the character of Harry Demore did not appear again in another movie or in a TV show? I think it was just um, Lord of Illusions, while a great movie, it didn't fare as well as, as they would have liked. And if it doesn't make dollars in the film... Industry, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's that's probably uh, the crux of it. 
didn't didn't bring in a lot of cash and just I guess it fell by the wayside. Do you think this movie deserves a cult following? Absolutely. Clive Barker has his own cult following anyways, but I think this movie is definitely one of his more unappreciated movies. I feel like Hellraiser and Nightbreed get more shine than Lord of Illusions does, but I definitely can see it taking its its seat at the table of great Clive Barker movies. I agree. And I do remember, so I've of course reviewed this, but I remember this was back in like 2016, I think. Uh, Bloody Disgusting posted an article in defense of Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. So I think it's sort of starting to resurface a little bit, but it's a, it's a film that I sincerely hope gets rediscovered and maybe starts seeing some screenings back at the box office. I think this would be an awesome retro showing. I think, I think either this movie and Hellraiser or this movie or Night in Nightbreed, we could have a great Clive Barker double feature. Yeah, at, um, at Carolina Theater's retro film series. I think that would be a very solid showing. I was really excited when Shout Factory decided to release the special edition Blu-ray several years back, the one that I ended up purchasing, because it included the director's cut as well as the theatrical version. And I was sort of hoping that would bring this movie back to the forefront and usher in some sort of cult following. Uh, Anyone I've talked to, interestingly, who has seen this appreciates it quite a bit. But it just doesn't seem to have uh, have a lot of airplay. I, I randomly found it like on TV a while back, but it was on some station. I can't remember what it was. It was like Comet TV or something, which probably just gets a lot of f- films and TV shows that have... And haven't already been picked up for syndication. Yeah, and it's inexpensive to get the rights to show those and throw them on there, but... I don't know, maybe... Maybe I'll get programmed into ABC's 13 Nights of Family. Then <laughs> <laughs> again, probably not. <laughs> so... If you had to pick someone else to play the part of Harry Damore, who would you choose? Who? Like a Today actor or just any actor? Any actor? I'm going to go with any actor. Bruce Willis. I could definitely see Bruce Willis in that role. I could see Morgan Freeman doing a good job. I could see Dennis Quaid. I think Danny Glover could have done a phenomenal job at this as well. William H. Macy. Ooh. That's a good sleeper pick. Yeah, Gabe's got the sleeper picks tonight. Yeah, I could I could totally see that. Did you have any favorite scenes in the movie? Um, I definitely really enjoyed the scene where Swan does the illusion where he dies. Yeah. That was a very impressive scene. And I I think that illusion itself has been explored 
by, I believe it was David Blaine at one point, because it's an actual, it's an actual illusion. And that was, that was a cool moment because, I mean, the effects were great. Like watching the swords actually plunge into Swan, it was very harrowing watching that occur. And the camera work really honed in on each sword, like, piercing his body. And right. A, sort of like a slow-mo blood splatter. So it was, it was difficult to watch. But even before that occurred, seeing this giant structure with, all, like, all these swords spinning around was, it was an impressive set. Very much. That was one of my favorite scenes as well. I also loved the Magic Castle excursion. Oh, yes. And that was where it just, again, where it was very much a mystery film. I did feel like that was slightly disjointed in a few spots. Like, he, uh, Demore goes to Magic Castle to look into Nyx, who calls himself the Puritan, and sort of dig into whether magic was actually being performed. And he ends up teaming up with this magician there, Billy. And Billy seems to have no motivation at all to help Demore. <laughs> and kind of whisks into the movie and then whisks out of the movie. And you're not really sure, A, why he helps Demore, but B, like, where he really came from. And... It was just a. It was a weird scene, but I I, I didn't really ask it's questions. It's like the more he he found a doddering old magician who had access to the magic. I was like, "Can you help me with this case?" And this guy's just like, <laughs> "Yeah, I got nothing else to do today." <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember that guy's name, but he was supposed to be like a well-known magician. Uh, the the first dude. Uh, one thing I loved about that sequence, though, is there's this. Uh, there are all these traps in there to, to deter uh, thieves. And one of them is projected. Is this like, alien-looking creature that's projected from a hidden uh, projector wall. And Demore shoots at it. And I, I think he misses like the first two time, one or two times mm-hmm. before hitting it. And I loved that moment because typically in movies, heroes are perfect. And they'll just like hit some improbable shot. And in Lord of Illusions, like, Demore gets tossed around a bunch. He gets beat up. He He's not a perfect shot. And I like that about this character. Like, he's, he's flawed. Oh, yeah. Definitely flawed. He ultimately prevails, but he's flawed. Oh, yeah. But I think some of the best, um... Some of the best are... Fun. Yeah. That's what makes it so great. And that's what makes the character of Demore so likable. Right. Because he's a human. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, props props to Clive Barker for giving him that human quality. Did you have any least favorite scenes? Polygon, man. Yeah, that was my least favorite as well. And then I'd also say there's one... There's sort of a backstory about Demore being haunted by some exorcism that was performed in New York because he's he's a, a private investigator from New York with a specialty in the occult. And sometime when he's in LA, 
he sort of has this dream that there's some weird demon fairy thing sitting on the edge of his bed. And it felt kind of stuck in. Like, it didn't really seem to have a place in the movie. Like, it just could have not happened. Yeah. It doesn't really bother me, but it doesn't really add anything to the movie. And I think I think that probably could have been left on the cutting room floor. But, yeah, overall, uh, I, I think I like most scenes in the movie. Except fucking Polygon, man. Yep. So, why don't we rate this bad boy? Alright, let's do it up. Um, I'm going to give this rating a 4. I think that it's a pretty flawless movie, except for the, the, the crummy CGI, which is why it lost a point in my book. I am going to give it a 4.8. Seven. I don't think it's quite the perfect movie. I definitely think it has its flaws, but it just feels very unique. Not only for a Clive Barker film, but just for a horror film in general. Uh, I think it's mostly cohesive. I think it's probably the best performance Scott Bakula's ever given. Uh, this movie just really holds up upon subsequent rewatches, especially the effects, aside from some of the really shoddy CGI that's in there. Uh, I love the soundtrack. Cinematography's really on point. So, yeah. I, this is one of those movies that I can just rewatch over and over, and uh, I'm, just, I'm still entertained. Oh, it definitely has rewatchability. And it has a ton of replay value, and... I'm just, uh, I'm hoping it gets that revisionist history that it deserves. So, this is the episode that you've all been waiting for. The Lord of Illusions episode. So, that's our episode. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. And, once again, head over to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Subscribe. If you want to go ahead and Give us a like on Facebook. That would be great also. You can also follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter. And if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at CupOfMo.com. And once again, from the Celluloid Fiends, once you go Bacula, you, you never, never go, go Bacula. Please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.